0: Um, hey, everyone. Kelly here. Um, before we get started with the main show, I just want to correct something that I said last episode. So Stephen was talking about the open source patents for Tesla. I said that they had actually only open sourced their connectors uh, patents. And then afterwards, I went and checked and it turns out that they did actually open source all of their patents, but no other company has taken them up yet on the offer. So I'm sorry that I <coughs> uh, said something wrong last time, but we're fact checking ourselves and setting the record straight this time. Um, And now for the show.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Renewable Generation, a show on climate and energy issues by young people for all people. My name is Evan, and this week, I officially returned to the U.S. workforce. Stephen and Kelly, how are you guys doing now that quarantine restrictions have started to lift?
0: Um, So here in King County, Washington, we finally um, entered phase two, which means that restaurants are now open at 50% capacity. Um, the hair salon is open so I might go get a haircut for the first time in like over a year. That That's not completely due to quarantine. We will only be quarantined for three months. But um, we're, not, we're at least not going back to the office just yet. Uh, my company, they have like branded hand sanitizers and masks. But we've all been working from home for three months and we've been fine. And I don't really want to like sit at my desk for eight hours wearing a face mask if I can just do my work at home. Um, so we'll see to what extent we actually return to work. I think we might have some like weekly um, team get togethers maybe, but I don't, I highly doubt that while COVID is still going on, we're going to be in the office every day like we used to be.
1: So Steven, how's uh, how's your return to norm being, uh, been going so far?
2: Um, I'd say pretty slowly, um, still not returning to normal so much. Um, uh, DC, like the DMV area overall has been like starting to loosen its restrictions and you know, like outdoor seating at restaurants and some bars as well as like is now available. Um, this weekend I was gonna go um, tubing on the some Virginia River and go floating down the river, you know, with some some beverages. But unfortunately, the the, the the forecast said it was gonna be storming this entire weekend, and then lo and behold, there was no storms. So that was that was real great. <laughs> but yeah, so I'm now sitting in my in my room and uh, had to turn off the AC to get rid of that feedback noise. So later on in the episode, if you hear me like heavily breathing, you'll, you'll know I'm just trying to like regulate my temperature. Well, Steven, we greatly appreciate the sacrifice you're making.
0: Yeah, here we've also been having like really questionable weather forecasts. So every single day during the week, it's been super nice, super beautiful. And then Saturday and Sunday, it's like on my weather app, it says rain emoji. But yesterday, so today it said rain emoji and then it was sunny. So Uh, I also question the weather forecast, but it's fine.
1: (laughs) So seven episodes into the renewable generation, we're actually starting to talk about renewable energy a little bit more uh, with last week's episode on electric vehicles. So this week, we decided, why not go all the way in and just talk about the grid as a whole? So for the next two episodes, we're going to be talking about the grid. And in this episode, why don't we start off with how did the electric grid get started?
2: So, So it all kind of began in 1879, when Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. Um, About 15 years later, in 1892, um, this young entrepreneur named Samuel Insull became the president of Chicago Edison, and that's where he built the first electrical grid. So at this time, there was this battle going on between DC versus AC, um, and eventually AC, um, well, DC is direct current, and AC is alternating current, or has sinusoidal waves. Um, And eventually AC won out because it turns out that it can travel further distances without having to lose energy. So it essentially means that you could build a grid out there several miles long or hundreds of miles long um, instead of a couple of blocks, which is what uh, DC would allow you to do. Um, So at this point in the late 1800s, this was like the age of big business monopolies. Um, At this point, there were were giant monopolies such as um, big oil, big steel, big railroads, uh, big salt, um, you know. Couple other ones get big meat, um, and you know electric utilities or big electricity. Um, so really, in the early 1900s was the was the beginning of now the antitrust era when when government started coming in and busting up these giant corporations and saying like, oh, you have to allow competition. You can't just have entire market dominance and stifle all competition. Um, so utilities um, or ut- utilities and entrepreneurs who ran these utilities became kind of creative at this point and decided if we're gonna if we're going to be regulated by the government, we might as well, you know, have a say in it. So they actually kind of pulled a sneaky trick, and they actually managed to allow themselves to become government-regulated monopolies. So what essentially it means it's like, technically, they're still monopolies, but the government's in there, like, you know, deciding the rules and stuff. So, you know, in, in modern day, what it means is, like, depending on where you live, you get serviced by a certain utility you don't really have a choice, you know? So I, I live here in DC. That means I'm serviced by Pepco. If you live up in Baltimore, you're serviced by bg and If you're in San Diego, you get serviced by, like, San Diego Gas and Electric. Um, if you're in NorCal, you know, PG&E, like, you name it, you know? Like, you don't really have an option. And what that means is that there's no competition. Like, utilities aren't incentivized to to provide better services um, because they have no risk of losing you as a customer. Um, so we'll, we'll talk more about this in the next episode. Um when we talk more about like you know regulation and and what that looks like and um, the policy landscape, um, but yeah, that's kind of like history, like 101 of where we how we got to where we are today.
0: Yeah, and so to your point about the regulated monopoly, the reason is that um, if you were to build out an entirely separate electric grid, like like the utility has all the poles and wires. If you had two sets of poles and wires going into every household to give them a choice, that doesn't really make sense. But what we're seeing now is the rise of competitive electricity providers. So for instance, you could have someone that um, has maybe a community solar farm and you're sourcing your electricity from the solar farm. You're still using the same poles and wires, but for the electricity supply in some markets, it's becoming deregulated, so there's more competition. So that's something um, that's changing in the market.
1: So we've talked a lot about the history of the grid but well, what actually is the grid, Stephen?
2: Yeah, so it's kind of like it's something that we take for granted nowadays to a large extent. So you like, you know, you look outside the window or anywhere you pretty much live in the, in the United States and in much of the world, you're going to see these like wooden poles and sometimes metal poles um, with wires running all over the place. It's like this whole interconnected um, grid, electrical grid of um, you know sticks and wires or, or poles and, and conduits. Um, really, um, it's so much so ingrained into our, into our psyche that it's not really something you notice anymore. It's like embedded into the infrastructure of where you live, whether you're in a city or you're way out in, in the boonies somewhere in like rural, you know, wherever. Um, so, um, and essentially what it's doing is like, it's physically transporting electrons from some source to some, uh, end use. Um, and that's, you know, and we, we can talk more about wh- where we get those electrons from, but... Um, that's kind of on the sourcing side, and, and yeah, the grid itself is really just that um, that whole network of systems, and it's, it's incredibly complex to the point where like there's no really there's no individual who really understands the whole grid. It's even grid operators themselves, whose job it is to like understand and manage a grid, they don't even know the grid. So it's really something that it, it is a good question, and it's something it's, it's actually a definition that I think is evolving um, in the in the 21st century.
1: Well, as Stephen says, nobody truly understands the grid. But I think I can trust, if anyone, Kelly Jiang, to tell me a little bit about how does the grid actually work?
0: Yeah, well, we're not going to get into the deep electrical engineering because that's way outside of my pay grade. I think even pe- people who have PhDs in uh, ele- in power systems engineering can only explain like the one component that they did their PhD on. Um, but basically what we need to know is that Traditionally, the grid is based on the one-directional flow, right? So you have electrons that are generated at some kind of centralized power uh, station. Um, Typically, um, traditionally, this would be things like coal, gas, nuclear, or hydro. Um, So the electricity is generated, and then the voltage of the electricity is increased. It's sent to the transmission network, um, and then it's sent to essentially um, a substation. So the substation takes it. It um, ramps down the voltage a little bit, sends it on some um, distribution lines, and then it goes to your home. And at your home, um, the voltage is about 120 volts. Um, In the uh, distribution network in your neighborhood, it would be about 10 kilovolts or 10,000 volts. And in the transmission network, it would be in the hundreds of kilovolts range, so hundreds of thousands of volts. Um, There are even transmission lines now that are up to the millions of volts. And so the reason why you want to have these higher voltages is because um, basically, if you have a higher voltage, then the to transfer the same amount of uh, power, the current will be lower. And the amount of power that's lost through the line is proportional to the current squared. So if you reduce the amount of current, then you're really reducing the amount of power lost. And so traditionally, um, right now, um, but, so traditionally, you could only um, ramp the voltage of AC up and down with these things called transformers. Now we have... Um, uh like dc dc converters these have just been invented in the last few decades like switches and things like that which can actually allow us to transmit um power Um, long distances using DC. But basically, the legacy grid is based on alternating current, and so that's what we use. So traditionally, um, the the transmission lines were all AC because that's the only way that you could transmit power for long distances. Now there's a lot of research into doing high-voltage DC transmission over long distances because this also gives you better control over where you can reroute the power. Because right now, transmission lines are only operating at about 30% capacity. So they're carrying power only 30% of the time, and the grid operators aren't Really good at kind of rerouting the power to use, maybe kind of take a little detour um, to get better utilization out of all the power lines. So, m- building transmission lines is extremely expensive. And so, getting better utilization out of our existing infrastructure is something that's going to be really important, especially if we want to decarbonize quickly.
2: Yeah. So, this is like, you know, talking about. Um... The grid now. Um, so again, you know, bringing it back to the point that the grid is like some physical assets out there. There's some physical poles, physical wires, right? And any physical assets require maintenance as well. Like if you, um, oh, the most, the majority of the grid was built in like the 1900s, um, which now we're in the 2000s. So it's been 100 plus years since they've been built out, and a lot of that stuff is like, um, is just like it's wood or it's metal. And rubber, so um, a lot of that stuff can rust or be destroyed or damaged in wind or storms or tree tree branches, right? So um, you have to think about maintenance as well. Um, the, the unfortunate thing is that utilities are not very good at maintenance um, for, for the most part, um, and the reason why is because of the of the way the their rate structures are set, are established, right? So they're government regulated monopolies, which in the 1900s that meant that. If you build out new infrastructure, the government's going to pay you to a profit to build it out. So They had a guaranteed rate of return, um, which, is, which didn't have anything, any strings attached to it about safety. Um, the, the law really kind of states that the utilities have to create reliable, affordable, and safe energy. Um, that's what the law says, but it's not financially incentivized. Um, in fact, it's almost like incentivized to not really take great care of your, of your wires because you're still going to make that profit, and you just can make more profit that way. Um, but we're starting to see um, utilities start to suffer because of this kind of mentality. Like um, PG&E, for example, has recently been guilty to manslaughter of um, 80-some uh, individuals in like the town of Paradise and the surrounding area, as well as massive, massive destruction from fires and just negligence, really criminal negligence. Um, so this is this is one of the problems with utilities is that we have to think about how, how we're going to set up the structures so that safety is not just part of the law, but actually you know, a core consideration of their business model.
1: So, Stephen, you're talking a lot about building infrastructure um, and how, like, uh, yeah, if you want to change things, you have to build the infrastructure in order to change the way things are done. So when you're looking at, like, how things changed from using primarily coal to now we're starting to use primarily natural gas, uh, what, what were the changes in infrastructure to make that change happen? And how could they maybe be correlated to a change from natural gas to renewable energy?
2: yeah well um, that's an interesting question um, well one of the things I would say is that as coal is going to be retired more and more um, you're going to have a lot more of those those factories sitting dormant um, doing nothing um, and um, meanwhile so so okay so when we thinking about coal and natural gas um, we're, th- we're talking about essentially peak demand um, and um, the idea that if Currently, um, a lot of peak demand is being serviced by coal generation, um, and at that point, we're switching it out with natural gas. Um, yeah, I, I don't really know. Yeah, Kelly, you got something there?
0: Yeah. In terms of switching from coal to natural gas, and this is something that's quite simple. Traditionally, most power plants on the grid are basically something that turns a rotating mass. So a coal, natural gas, or even nuclear plant, you're basically... It's basically a fancy steam turbine. You're boiling water, and then the steam goes up. It turns this um, big turbine, and that um, is used as an engine to generate electricity. The same is true with hydro. Instead of having a steam engine, you just have the uh, water falling down and making the turbine turn. This is something that utilities are very familiar with. There's various grid service called spinning versus non-spinning reserves, which are basically based on the premise that every generator that you have on the grid is going to be a spinning hunk of metal. And um, now even like just these legacy terms are like, oh, like how can batteries provide spinning reserves? And um, I think they're trying to kind of change on some level, kind of trying to figure out what actual services the grid needs. So things like inertia, like if the frequency on the grid drops, then you have these big spinning masses that will also maybe uh, speed up or slow down a little bit to kind of balance out the frequency on the grid. Um, You can do this with power electronics as well. Um, But the utilities have kind of been hesitant to adopt these things because it's unfamiliar to them. And they just like don't really have any incentive to innovate. They're very incentivized to just like protect their returns, drag their feet because they know that they're not going to be disrupted. So switching from coal to natural gas, because it's basically switching from one form of thermal generation to another, is not really that big of a deal from the perspective of the grid. In fact, um, right now, actually, peak demand is met more by natural gas plants that can ramp up very quickly. Coal is kind of a base load, so it's something that's running most of the time anyway, because we've seen, like, they try to see if coal can ramp up and down, and it just can't. It just takes too long to ramp up and down, so it's it doesn't even it's not flexible. It doesn't even provide like fuel security, which is what the Department of Energy was trying to say. And then there's a lot more issues when transitioning to renewables because solar there obviously isn't a big rotating mass. With wind, the speed of rotation is dependent on the speed of the wind, um, and so there's a lot of innovation that's going to ha- need to happen with the power electronics around those.
1: And now it's time for Evans Climate Fact. Of the day! Did you know? When somebody had a good idea before 1879, a wicker candle would appear above their head. But before fire was invented, there were no good ideas. In fact, there were no ideas at all. Ew. And that was Evan's climate fact of the day! <laughs>
0: And if you're (laughs) eco-friendly, an LED will appear above your head.
1: (laughs) Hey, Kelly with the abridged version. (laughs) Um, So we've talked about the legacy of the centralized grid, but now we're seeing a rise in things like rooftop solar and, as we talked about last week, electric vehicles, which allow customers to supply power onto the grid. But how will this change the dynamics behind the power grid?
2: Yeah, so... You know, we're talking a lot about the grid, and um, you know, Kelly was touching upon like sourcing ideas. Um, so, like coal, um, natural gas, um, we are talking about solar and wind, um, hydroelectric. All of these things are um, sources, energy sources for how we put electrons on the grid. Um, so, the grid, what the grid does is send electrons to, from place to place, and we need to create those electrons somehow. Um, so, yeah, so when we're talking about the transition from coal into maybe the future of energy, um, I think people think about um, really like natural gas, and and then like clean energy sources like solar, wind, um, and maybe even nuclear. So, first of all, like talking about natural gas is um, the idea that in the last in the last couple of years, in the last decade or so, um, we've seen a drop in emissions from the electricity sector, which is like indisputably like to the to the to the credit of natural gas. Um, so, over the last ten or fifteen years. Uh, the United States has discovered um, a massive oil reserve in like near Texas, which is called like the Permian Basin, in which um, they've it has really shifted the, the really the global energy space. Um, so previously, like the United States was a net uh, importer of energy, which meant that they, they bought and and received oil and petroleum products from places in the Middle East, such as Saudi Arabia and um, Russia, and like this is like a, a whole. Um, Global uh, relationship known as like OPEC Plus, um, and however, like you know, in the last ten or fifteen years, they they've discovered massive amounts of natural gas within Texas, which has shifted things so dramatically that the U.S. is now a net exporter of energy, where they're selling uh, natural gas to other countries um, for, um, for the first time in like uh, in the U.S.'s history, probably. Um, you can fact check me on that, Kelly. <laughs> I'd appreciate that. So when we're talking about, like, like, Kelly and I are very optimistic towards the future of clean energy. Um, but What we're seeing right now is the effect of natural gas. Um, so we're, we're going to be seeing the future is, like, an increase of natural gas as well. Um, that I mean, that's already going up. But we're also going to be seeing an increase in clean energy, um, such as solar, wind, and batteries, and electric vehicles, um, which is really going to, like, shift the, the dynamics behind the power grid. Um, Kelly, do you, do you want to speak about like the, the ideas of like the prosumers?
0: Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just checked and the U S in 2019 became a net energy exporter for the first time since 1952. So it's not the first time in history, but it's the first time since most boomers were born. So if you're a boomer and you consider history to be like your own life, then yes, it is the first time in history. Um, yeah. So, um, back to your point about the prosumer. So Evan was mentioning the rise of things like solar and EVs, which are distributed energy resources that customers can own, right? So prosumer is basically a combination of the word producer and consumer. So you can be someone who both produces and consumes electricity. So if you have solar on your roof, you're generating um, electrons with your solar panels and sending them back onto the grid if you're not using them. Um, Likewise, um, with advances in electric vehicle technology, if you have something like V2G, vehicle to grid, your car can send electricity back into the grid. So this is something that um, people are increasingly adopting, but utilities are not happy about this because they're used to the traditional model where they essentially have good visibility into all the power plants. They know what's generating wind. And if there's power coming back onto the distribution network, they kind of start freaking out because they're, currently their software, um, their level of visibility into what's happening at the distribution level is not good because that's not something that they needed to care about. They're just like, okay, there's like some load over here. Let's just like send enough electricity over there. But if you have a lot of solar, sometimes it can, the electricity can go the other way. That's not something that they're used to dealing with. It's something that you can innovate and figure out how to deal with, but rather than thinking about creative ways, essentially utilities have to be forced into um, dealing with um, these situations.
2: Yeah. And they, you know, on that point, like I would just like to drive the point home and say that utilities are incompetent. Um, they, they really are. So like I, I, I work as a solar developer and I worked a lot with utilities and and some utilities are far better far better than others, by the way, because they're seeing the future and actually trying to be proactive about staying in business. But a lot of utilities are so protected by their regulations that they have no fear. And, and that, in a company, that's a bad thing. Like Companies should fear change and should fear you know, going out of business because it makes them innovate and compete to stay relevant and stay modern. Um, so, um, yeah, there's so many utilities who just don't know what's going on with their feeders. Um, there's like shutdowns happening all the time. Like, I mean, you know, we already talked about PG&E, but, you know, I'd love to hammer on the point of PG&E because it's really a great case study of of every, every utility should be looking at PG&E and saying, I really don't want that to be me. And that would be a good thing going forward. So, like, PG&E had no idea, like, which which utility lines they even had. They were saying, like, oh, which, you know, which feeder was down. Like, we don't even know which ones were there. Um, they don't, um, to a large degree, there's, like, they're now doing, like, these power safety shutoffs. Um, which is like they're the best solution they can come up with, and like that's, I, I I you know I'm gonna walk myself back here and say I don't know what I would do better in that in the situation they're in currently, but I know that they shouldn't have been so negligent with their safety for the last decades. Like San Diego Gas and Electric, for example, is actually been paying attention to to maintenance and safety, and like to their credit, they're not facing the same problem that pg and is having now. So all this to say that. We, in my opinion, should deregulate the utility sector and let them experience a little bit of competition.
0: Yeah, and speaking about PG&E, I mean, their record of bad safety way predates the current situation with the wildfires. I mean, Aaron Brockovich, um, that whole situation was back in the 90s. And since then, their safety record hasn't really improved. There was a whole thing about how their um, one of their gas pipelines blew up in San Bruno, when I was in China, actually, I spoke to this guy who had been an engineer at pg and and he was like, I just got out of there because a lot of engineers like me, they kind of brought stuff up and they're like, hey, you know, this is a red flag. Management brushed it under the rug. They're like, whatever. We care about the profits for this quarter. So he was like, screw this. I'm leaving. And then he moved to China to uh, teach English, I guess. So I think there's a culture in a lot of these places about dismissing kind of the concerns of engineers because it might not um, look so good on their bottom line. And then maybe a couple couple years later, 5, 10, 20 years later, the chickens come home to roost and now they're in very, very deep trouble.
2: Yeah. So, you know, we're talking about um, bringing it back to the idea of the grid and the future of the grid. So as we're putting more DERs or distributed energy resources onto the grid, like batteries, solar and wind... Um, we're essentially seeing customers, um, both residential and and um, commercial customers, essentially remove for themselves, essentially remove themselves from the grid, um, saying that they can provide their own energy um, without the without the utilities' help anymore. And so that is now going to start posing additional problems to to the utility as well.
1: So people are getting more involved in controlling their own energy supply, which is great. But it's also fair to say that. These people that are taking these actions, people who drive Teslas, have power walls in their homes, they're largely white. So there obviously there has to be a transition in order to there has to be a transition to get more people in on this movement. But how do we get to that transition and how does environmental justice play a role in that transition?
0: Yeah, so um, the energy transition as a term is broadly used to say, like, we're shifting towards more distributed and renewable energy. So currently, a lot of people who are mainly invested in the energy transition are people who are wealthier, have the means to put solar on the roofs. For instance, you have to actually own your home to be able to put solar on your own roof. And due to the legacy of things like redlining, um, people of color, particularly black people, are much less likely to own their homes than uh, white people. Um, So, as people get more solar and batteries, they rely less on the grid, Um, and so the costs of maintaining the grid um, fall more and more on the people who are still connected to the grid. So, this idea is called the utility death spiral, as more and more of the costs are put on fewer and fewer customers, and these are typically customers that don't have access to these um, renewable technologies. Currently, it's not that big of a deal because the penetration of solar is not that high. But as the penetration of solar is higher, I think you'll see a lot of utilities shifting more towards like if you're actually still connected to the grid, even if you're generating electricity, you still have to pay for the privilege of being able to use um, electricity from the grid um, during the times that you need it. Um, And so the fact that um, traditionally a lot of people who have access to solar um, tend to be wealthier and whiter, this actually makes the situation pretty ripe for race baiting. So there's this group called Fueling US Forward, which is backed by the Koch brothers who are heavily invested in fossil fuels. They go into low, uh, low income neighborhoods, basically talk about fossil fuels are great, how renewable energy will raise their energy bills, and they should oppose things like net metering that makes solar cheaper for customers. So the NAACP, has pushed against this and um, said that they support environmental justice. And there's also a lot of programs to help um, low-income communities access solar energy. So this is something that we really need to keep in mind, even though there are efforts in this space, I think especially um, given the focus that we've seen recently on Black Lives Matter and how the climate movement has kind of done some self-examination about this as well, we still have a long ways to go. So. Um Stephen, could you speak a bit more about um, some of the options for low-income communities to access um, the benefits of solar energy?
2: Sure thing. Um, so there are a variety of solutions to this, um, both technological and political. Um, um, so first talking about technology. Um, my my company, for example, um, we we work on doing a lot of community solar in rural areas of Minnesota. Um, and so to the to the Kelly's point about, you tend to have to own your own house to put solar on it. That is true, you know, but there's also a way to to circumvent that, which is that if we can develop solar like solar farms somewhere, you know, further away from your house, maybe some in some field or a farm or, you know, a couple miles, maybe even hundreds of miles from where you live, um, we can develop solar there and allow um, customers to come in and say, I claim, you know, one tenth of that solar array, or I, I claim like, you know, up to eighty percent of that solar array. And essentially, what that looks like is like if, if I have developed, you know, let's say a thousand solar panels on that plot of land, like whatever customer who owns ten percent will own one hundred of those solar modules, and they'll own one hundred of all the energy that's produced there. Uh, that energy will come onto your uh, utility bill at the end of the month, and it'll be offset from some through some accounting, or, um, through some accounting, and um, you know, SREX as well get allocated. Um, SREX are solar renewable energy credits, and they're um, they're, they're they're this they're this uh, accounting. Um, this accounting tool that we can use to put a a monetary value on clean energy and environmental um, benefits that we see. Um, So that's like the technology side. Um, There's also just like straight up political um, action that's necessary as well. So, you know, when we think about these technologies, they're they're technologies that are new and they're becoming mainstream now, but they're still coming down the cost curve. So solar, wind and batteries are still somewhat expensive, relatively speaking. They're coming down, and the way and the nature of those kinds of things is that you're going to have the wealthiest first being able to access it, and then it starts coming down in cost, and then you get like upper middle class, and then you get middle class, and eventually you get it so cheap that you can that everyone can afford it. Think, think about like the iPhone, for example, or smartphones in general, or like a, you know a car, automobile. And historically, it's always it's always how it happens. But it's important that we don't just dismiss it because, you know, environmental justice is really examining that that environmental disparity that we might see. So as as climate change gets worse and pollution to our air and our water gets worse, and essentially white affluent neighborhoods are going to be, um, you know, washing their hands of this mess, it's going to be leaving um, those poorer incomes, um, poor income communities like, behind. Um, so for example, in D.C., there's this um, program called D.C.'s Solar for All, and it's essentially um, in D.C. We have like a a, a, a clean energy goal of. 100% renewable energy by 2032, um, but we also, um, part of that goal and part of that legislation is to engage um, organizations such as grid alternatives, um, as well as startups like New Partners Community Solar, um, as well as other companies called like um, Arcadia Solar, which um, I'm a customer of as well, and they, they focus on, by law, that they have to allocate a certain amount of their um, community solar allocations to low-income communities. So this is, again, this is not something that happens on its own in terms of economics or capitalism, because those people tend to be less profitable. But that being said, like, we do need to focus on that if, at the end of the day, our goal is to create a better future for all of us.
1: Well, now it's time for the segment that Dianne Feinstein says there's no way to pay for. It's the Green New Spiel. Stephen, why don't you start us out?
2: Cool. Um, thanks, Evan. So I have, if I could just sneak by two Green New Spiels this this episode, will will the court allow that?
1: No. Um, Go ahead,
2: Stephen. As many greenish fields as you need. <laughs> thank you. Oh, thank you, Your Honor. Well, so my first greenish spill is about BP. So once again, I'm, 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 I'm lauding BP's accomplishments. So they've re- recently written down the long-term cost of oil by 27% from around $87 a barrel to around $55 a barrel. So um, first of all, what, what does written down mean? I had to actually look this up when I when I read the article. So written down essentially is an accounting um, technique in which they look at some of their assets that they own and they decide, oh, we're gonna we think it's valued a little bit less than what it's currently valued at. And it's something that comes up during auditing and when you start to you know present to your investors how much is your company worth. Um, so this written down um, procedure that just happened is due to two reasons. Um, the one there's there's been a um, huge demand shock due to COVID-19 and uh, as well as the oil wars that have been going on at OPEC plus with Saudi Arabia and Russia, which essentially has made um, the value of oil plummet in fact we you no, know, We had negative price of oil um, for the first time in US history um, just a couple like a couple weeks ago. Um, so that's the first part and the second part is that they've also um, they have about 17.5 billion dollars of oil discoveries that they'd said that will not be developed. So meaning that they will not be claiming seventeen point five billion dollars of assets, which is huge. So this is a direct result of pressure to hashtag keep it in the ground. So I just want to shout out to the BP CEO Bernard Looney. Love you, guy. Um, and um, also my second green new spiel. <laughs> They're scoffing at me, but I welcome their scoffs. Okay, the second green new spiel is um, that the Vatican has recently called on all 1.2 billion um, Catholics in the world to shun and divest from fossil fuels. Um, in his 225 page address the Pope called people to quote shun companies that are harmful to human or social ecology such as abortion and armaments and to the environment such as fossil fuels. Um, so some some uh, striking uh, you know, words in that statement, um, but focusing on that, about that part about the environment. So the Pope has repeatedly urged action on climate change historically. And last year, he told a group of oil executives at the Vatican that, quote, time is running out. Deliberations must go beyond mere exploration of what can be done and concentrate on what needs to be done from today onward. So I, I thought that was huge because he just has a huge platform. He can he can speak to so many individuals from a um Arguably more morally um, unassailable position, but in any case, he's definitely a, a moral um, authority in the world. So I think it. I think it's going to have some powerful ramifications. Uh, at least I hope it does.
1: Uh, shout out to the papacy. Uh, all right, now we'll hear from Kelly and her Green Newspiel.
0: So first, I'm going to speak to Stephen's point about um, BP writing down their assets. I don't think it's a direct result of um, people advocating to keep it in the ground. I think it's because the price of oil will be lower. A lot of these unconventional reserves are quite expensive to recover. Even like shale oil, they're not making very much money if the oil price is below $50 per barrel. Um, some of these things, like Arctic drilling, tar sands, you're not going to be able to access it unless you're making a lot, of, unless the price of oil is high, and that's um, part of why they're trying to keep it in the ground. So for whatever reason, even if it's unprofitable, and that's the reason they're doing it, great. Like then they should stop doing these unprofitable things and invest in things like renewable energy, which are profitable. Um, so my green news spiel—it's kind of a depressing news story about uh, microplastics. I think many of you might have seen the story about how. Um, Plastic rain is the new acid rain. Um, these scientists basically um, collected um, air samples, both dry and wet, from some um, remote national park areas. So basically, um, there's one that's to collect dry air, one to collect basically what washes out in the rain. And they found microplastics in like 96% of all the samples that they took. These are in areas that are very remote. And so it's basically showing that plastic microplastics are being deposited everywhere. The smallest microplastics that they found were about four um, micrometers in length. And they're like, well, there could be even smaller ones that we just can't see, like nanoplastics. And it's just a little bit scary to think about the fact that, like, once these plastics are out there, you really can't clean them back out. Um, There's no, like, plastic magnet. And so it's just kind of humbling to think about the fact that, like, ultimately, as humans, what we're going to leave behind in the Fossil record is like a layer of plastic that's going to outlast anything else in our civilization. And that's the hopeful note that I'm going to end on.
1: All right. Well, thank you, Stephen and Kelly, for your green news spiels. And with that, we wrap up the segment and we wrap up the show. Thanks, as always, for listening to The Renewable Generation. And feel free to give us a review either on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, And next week, we'll be back with another episode on The Grid. Thank you.